0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Looking down from 30,000 feet or something, I so much, uh, so much, so interesting in, in this coverage of um, thinking about what happened in Recent parts of our radiation and and all the lines of evidence that can speak to that and uh, it's very exciting the new ones that are developing, um, I, so I but the kinds of questions that occur to me and may occur to many of you is how almost whatever line of evidence you're working on these issues of sample size turn out to be important you know how many. How many of those did we actually measure to represent uh, the distribution of something? And these are issues that recur, whether we're talking about morphology or whether it's the archaeology or whether it's um, certainly it gets to be really fancy stuff with the genetics. I mean, of course, I was as blown away by the rest of you, although I'd heard this before when Josh Aki mentioned this, you know, 41% of Neanderthal genomes are among us. That that's um, surprising. And it may be that the reason there's only 10% of Denisovan genomes is we just don't, those samples are still (laughs) tiny, you know, most of the world is not uh, as well sampled as other parts of the world. Um, uh, whether, whether or not we can, we can get any further uh, asking questions about that, I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not sure. I, I was also, uh, maybe I already said this, I, w- I was struck by Teresa Steele's use of that map to remind us how big Africa is, uh, and it is enormous. Um, and especially if you look at those Mercator projections that make it look like Greenland and Africa are the same size, <laughs> you really forget how uh, careful you need to be. And that, that's actually true of a lot of other things where the proper kind of measurement makes makes a big difference. Um, it is really important that not only in the Holocene, but also certainly before I mean even more so before the Holocene, that uh, what was going on with climate change and so what was happening ecologically was hugely important, and that's sort of a dimension of the variation that this coverage, which was already lots of stuff, you know didn't have time to, to say very much about, um, so there'll have to be more. Carta Symposia, trying to pull some of that together. Um, uh, It is very striking, Ian's uh, evidence, that a lot of the things that we tend to associate with marked changes with the origins of agriculture and and the cartoons we sort of tell about that, that actually when we have what looks like uh, harder evidence about that, Maybe they're not as marked. I, given, given the kinds of things I work on, I, I'm always trying to fight this notion that the, the diet of hunter-gatherers is meat is the most important thing. I'm, I'm a longstanding opponent of the hunting hypothesis. So I wanted to cheer that uh, particular result that he was talking about. Um, it's also the case that where you find the people to sample today, Mm, it does that tell you where the genes were that they're carrying? So we've got all this really complicated uh, puzzle. Things changing uh, over over space and time in ways that a lot of people are working very hard to try to to. Um, uh untangle so this has really been exciting and and to begin to talk about your questions i think mark is going to start right yeah so uh so mark
2: right so so the easier one of the two Mm -hmm. does the distribution of beads made from shells from south africa to morocco and the levant suggest that they were traded uh, or that there were trade routes uh, for example, despite isolation, shells from the coast of New Guinea are found in the the high altitude New Guinea Highlands. Are the beads all made from the same kind of shells? Are the holes made in similar places? Um,
3: well, so far, these kind of beads are never been found very far from the from the coast. Although sometimes they found inland. Um, uh, I don't think it's trade. I think it's simply that this um, this behaviour, this uh, innovation, diffused uh, during this contact period between all these populations. Uh, again, what is to me what I find striking is that uh, this very specific behaviour developed at such a, a geographical scale, and uh, really it, it questions. Again, considering the size of of Africa, how you can have this uh, this kind of uh, uh yeah diffusion of of uh, of an innovation which is quite specific
2: yeah okay. do you think it's possible that we are in the process of speciating based on brain wiring? I see that people'm not quite sure that somebody's got handwriting that's as bad as mine um <laughs> I see that people wired through the amygdala have many different behaviors and people wired through the partial anterior cortex. Uh. Well, the,
3: the message I tried to deliver is that uh, evolution does not stop. And actually, if you look at, at uh, brain evolution, uh, or at least the brain case, and, but also from what we know from paleogenetics... Is that uh, there is not something like, such as what we call modern humans that suddenly appeared and then was sort of fixed. In fact, uh, the chart I sh- I showed you um, shows that uh, it's only let's say after 40,000 years ago that we start to find individuals that, in terms of uh, endocast uh, shape, enters the present day. Uh, variation so in other words we have a, there is a gradual evolution of these features uh, throughout a long period of time with this increase of the cerebellum and some other changes probably a lot having to do with the wiring of the brain and this we know it from more from the genetics and and paleogenetics because they have there are a series of um, of um, uh, gene variants uh, which are found in all populations today, so they must be very advantageous. Uh, and so, and some of them are connected to brain development and, and brain uh, wiring. Uh, um, so again, uh, I think this basically raises the question of how we define uh, modern humans. And there is always this all these questions about, you know, uh, why did we not replace Neanderthals earlier? You know, people are coming about uh, uh, the, the issue of why, uh, you know, when... Uh, early modern humans entered Eurasia, nothing happened for a long time before. But I think the modern humans who lived 100,000 years ago are not the modern humans of today, and they are not the modern or so-called modern humans of 200,000 years ago. And this is what I try to express with my title, is that somehow the early modern humans are archaic, and uh, they are not so different, say, from Neanderthals in many aspects.
2: So, uh, I've got three questions for you. First one, can we really distinguish separate species of Homo, given that they can interbreed, or is there a graduation of diversity that was greater when we coexisted with Neanderthals and Denisovans? Hmm.
4: Um, can we distinguish species of Homo, given that, given that they interbreed? Uh, the point is that we can actually distinguish modern humans from Neanderthals um, from their morphology, they look Neanderthals look quite homogeneous and quite distinct from modern human anatomy. Now, going back further in time, this becomes more difficult. Um, what was the rest of the question no i 'm sorry oh sorry
5: <laughs>
4: <laughs> but maybe we have to reexamine the the idea of what is actually a species, right so given that something interbreeds, is that still if you have two different looking sort of kind of groups and um, that you can distinguish repeatedly and, and um, uh, consistently, right? But you know that they can occasionally interbreed. Are they or should they be considered the same species or can they still be considered separate species? And that's a gigantic question that has been discussed for a very long time. What is a species? I mean, the standard definition of species this uh, the biological species concept basically gives this isolation, reproductive isolation as a criterion, but we do know that in nature this is actually not a very clear-cut um, phenomenon, right? So it's not really uh, the case that species cannot ever interbreed with each other. It's actually a lot, especially if they're closely related, um, in many, many instances there can be interbreeding uh, even if you have quite distinct um, well-recognized species living today. For example, I think it's something like 10% of recognized species in primates living today actually can interbreed successfully. So it's important to remember that speciation is not an event, it's actually a process, it's a gradual process and reproductive isolation is only comes at the very end. So I think that we have to imagine perhaps a more dynamic situation not just these um, sort of static entities that either interbreed or not but a more fluid dynamic um, uh, situation with lineages rather than species and with possibilities of um, crossing back and forth even if they remain to a large extent independent and separate if that makes sense.
2: Uh. On homo sapiens skulls, in, in the globularization of the human skull, you mentioned expansion of the parietal area. Would this map to changes in the parietal cortex, what about expansion of the temporal area?
4: So I think that's probably for Jean-Jacques. But um, in any case, I think it's, it's uh, not so easy to know exactly what's going on in the brain. The brain doesn't fossilise, so the information that we get from fossils is actually from the inside of the bone of the cranium. Itself, so I think it's been argued that there is an expansion of the parietal lobe, lobe, and it's been found before that there are some um, also differences in the um, configuration of the temporal lobe as well. But I don't know if you want to add something to this. But I don't think we can be a lot more specific than that because the brain itself does not fossilize.
3: Yes, as Katrina explained, what we have is not the brain, is the, the outer shape of the brain, uh, sort of molded by the bones. And one difficulty is that when we see an area that seems to be bulging or developing, is it really because there is an expansion of this part of the cortex or is it because there is underneath something growing that's going to push uh, these structures outside? It's probably what's going on with the the parietal areas. Now there is a specific case, uh, which is the case of cerebellum, for which it really looks like there is an increase in size of the cerebellum in all species through time. And uh, this is driving a lot of interest now, because we know cerebellum is involved in many uh, functions.
2: Thank you. So uh, this question is actually about a local... Aspect to the Dispersal of Modern Humans, the Cerruti Mastodon Discovery Site.
6: Oh. okay.
2: So it was discovered in San Diego in 2014. Claims to have found human working on bone dated to 130,000, uh, significantly pushing the earliest dates formally proposed for the peopling of North America. Um, the, the questioner would like to know... Uh, it has this find and its related published papers been accepted by academia or is Carter aware of the significance of this discovery
4: okay well i haven't i don't know the site personally, so I haven't visited it I haven't seen this material but um, it's my understanding that it's actually quite controversial. It's been argued that the uh, Actually, the argument for this presence of humans in in North America at a very early age is made on modifications of um, these uh, propocidian uh, bones. And it's been argued that perhaps this is the result of uh, other factors, stephanomic factors or damage that uh, happened uh, probably during construction. Actually, this is uh, what I've heard uh, has been discussed before. For me, it's actually really strange if, um, if you did have this uh, exploitation of this proboscidean elephant carcass by early humans at What is it? 130,000 years before present. Why uh, are we not really finding any stone tools? Like there should be a lot of stone tools associated with it. So um, I find this uh, to be problematic. And um, well, I think it needs to be uh, much more. there, There needs to be more stronger evidence to support this claim.
2: So, um, we've got a couple of questions here. Uh, so, one, the first one is, uh, how do you know if the jaw shape is genetic or adaptive, i.e. does form follow function as as the jaw grows? Okay. So, it's a question about the relationship between form and function in the jaw.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I talked about how um, there might be some changes in the jaw uh, associated with these changes in diet that are associated with agriculture. Um, and, you know, one of the... Um, so. There's some evidence definitely that suggests that this is maybe not genetic or it's a sort of genetic environmental interaction. Um, so probably the best evidences we have is we have kind of these feeding experiments, in, um, not in humans, but in other animals, um, when, when, you, when you give them kind of, uh, kind of harder diets and softer diets. Um, and you can see these changes that happen when they get the softer diets. And so it doesn't seem to be sort of a directly uh, kind of a genetic consequence, but it's kind of an interaction maybe between the genome and the environment. Um, And so, you know, we don't necessarily know for sure that that's actually what's happening when we see these changes in the jaw in humans, Um, but based on this experimental evidence, this seems to be kind of a likely explanation. Um, but cer- certainly some of these uh, changes could have, ha- could have happened due to kind of natural selection kind of actually acting on the genome uh, related to these different diets. So we, I don't think we know for sure, but there's definitely some experimental evidence from, from other species that suggest uh, that it might be more of this kind of a plastic response.
2: Okay, thanks, Simon. The other question, I mean, it's, it's along similar lines, but it's about the relationship between spoken language and skull shape, and whether we can infer anything from uh, skull morphology and the ability to use spoken language.
0: Okay, so this is a tricky question, and uh, there's probably others who also could could answer this question. But, um, I mean, the, uh, so... So, it's, I mean, I think it's one thing to think about language, and it's another thing to think about speech. And usually what we're trying to infer, you know, from the skeleton is actually speech, so the ability to produce, you know, kind of certain sounds that we kind of we use in language. Um, and the tricky thing is that the, most of the anatomy that's involved in speech is actually uh, kind of soft, you know, soft tissue. It's not stuff that uh, preserves kind of in, in the bones and in, in the fossil record. And so anytime people have tried to kind of make inferences about the apparatuses associated with speech, you're you're making very kind of direct inferences, right? So you're looking at things like the base of the skull, uh, you're looking at, you know, bones like the hyoid, um, and you're looking at other things uh, that are kind of very indirect to try to make inferences about the anatomy associated with speech. And so I think uh, my personal opinion is that, uh, that it's kind of very tricky to try to reconstruct that by looking at fossils. And I don't think we have such clear cut evidence about uh, by looking at fossils about really uh, figuring out when uh, we would have had the ability to to produce uh, kind of these sounds. Uh, certainly, if you're thinking more broadly about kind of language, not speech per se, um, probably the archaeological record is a better kind of way of looking at that because looking at maybe evidence of, of symbolism that we can see in the archaeological record, uh, making, looking at the evidence of technologies that we think maybe in order for them to be manufactured, you maybe would have had to have communication between individuals to kind of passing this information on by language. So trying to look at things like that, uh, those lines of evidence I think may be better uh, suited to. Getting at, at, at um, questions about uh, when there was language.
2: Thanks, Tim. John. Great question to start with. Uh, is the Rising Star Cave system being carefully excavated to improve physical accessibility? If not, why not? <laughs> Wonderful. To That's
7: an awesome question. Thank you. Um, and, and thank you all for staying for this really interesting question and answer. Thanks to the YouTube folks who are out there. My students are watching the live stream today, so I really appreciate that this is happening. Um, so are we making the hole bigger so you can go in <laughs> is the question. And the answer is our, our priority is conservation of the cave system in every respect. Um, safety is an enormous priority for us. It is, We're fortunate to have a team of people who have the right skill set and who have the appropriate training to be able to maintain excavation safely in a very, very challenging circumstance. Um, we're not going to change the cave. The reason why is twofold. One, that we are conservation minded and we get more and more cooperation from landowners and from other people knowing that we're not going into places and changing the natural situation in the caves. That's very important to our work. The second reason is that this cave system meant something to Homo Naledi. And we cannot understand that without understanding the entire contour of the natural cave system. Altering the constraints in the cave system will make it impossible for us to study that scientifically. And so as long as as long as we're in charge of the excavations, that's the way it's going to be.
2: Yeah. Okay. Popular response? <laughs>
6: um,
2: this should be a quick one to answer. What can we tell from the tools and anatomy of Homan and Letty regarding their diet and culture?
7: Okay, that's a, that's a great question. What can we tell about Homo naledi's diet and culture from, from their anatomy, or from what we know? I can tell you that um, we know that its diet must have been similar to the human diet today in terms of its... Uh, in terms of how much it wore the teeth because Naledi has small teeth that are human-like in size and in particular, its canines and incisors are small, in fact, a little bit smaller than the average human. And so that suggests that it's eating a high-quality diet. It suggests that food processing extra-orally may have been important. Maybe they're using tools in the process of, of processing their food. Um, we can study, th- I will add, we know that they chipped their teeth a lot and that their microware was was similar to hunter-gatherers broadly in Africa today. Um, those are all things that we can get from studying the, the anatomy and the traces of behavior directly on the teeth. Um, we will know more about other things like the stable isotope ratios in the future that will tell us a little bit more about the proportions of different foods you know, contributing to their diet. I think we're going to know as much about this as we know about any hominin species. There's still no tools. I cannot say that there's no tools. Um, I can say that, I'll tell you quite honestly, right, we have tools in the cave system. It is going to be very difficult for us to be confident that we have tools that we can associate with Homo naledi in the cave system.
2: Politician's response, very good. (laughs) Okay. Uh, presuming burial was deliberate 30 meters below the surface, what is the probability of finding evidence of fire?
7: Um, That's a great question. The, some of the earliest evidence of fire is at Swartkrans, which is 800 meters from our site, and it is more than 1 million years old. So fire is within the capability of hominins in this exact place More than 600,000 years before we find evidence of Homo naledi there. The question is, can we find evidence in the cave of naledi making fires? I think that there's a relatively good chance that if evidence exists, we will find it. However, after this period of time, um, the, the traces of fire are extraordinarily difficult to find and are, and are often covered up by the geological processes that alter cave walls. And so I'm going to tell you that it's going to be hard to find the, the, the smoking gun in this case, um, but I can tell you that we, ha- we are investigating it, and, and if there's evidence there, I think we'll find it.
2: Wow, smoking gun. Um, I think this might be my favorite of the questions so far. Uh, <clears throat> can we speculate that other hominids enslaved Homo naledi? <laughs> Especially if the bodies, whether well its brain size, are smaller and less powerful. Uh, if so, it's, could some or, or any of the cultural evidence should be attributed to the, the enslavers rather than naledi?
7: You know, I've heard them all. Um, there are some folks who think that a giant snake must have dragged them in there. There are some people who think that you know they're they're clearly were sucked in in into a mud muddy crevasse, and uh, it, it, there's everybody wants to speculate about what's going on. What I find invariably is that when you have an alternative to Homo naledi being involved deep in the cave system and and involved in the bodies being there, the alternative is invariably more complicated than that. So if we're going to talk about the first case of enslavement, which is 250,000 years before any other evidence of it, that's a surprising thing, right? That's something that you'd have to say, well, wait a minute, this is, this is fairly extreme as an alternative to just taking the, the explanation that seems like it's there in the cave. Um, and I find it super interesting, actually, because I find that people want to find some other explanation than the small-brained hominin did something interesting, and and there's something deep within us that is very sort of egocentric in that way about our about what's inside of our heads. Um, I think that it's exciting to think of these different alternatives but also to think of expanding our view of what it means to be human.
2: Very good, last one for you John. Um, Just put your your DNA hat on for a moment. Um, In 2018, data surpassed oil as the most valuable resource on planet Earth. I'm not sure about the legitimacy of that fact but let's take it as red for the moment. As ancient DNA gets commodified, who owns it? Does does any of this, or uh, any of the dollars, get reinvested in Africa or the descendant populations?
7: Right. That's, a, that's an awesome question. Um, I want to I point out my uh, UCSD colleague, Keolu Fox, uh, who I'm, maybe he was here earlier, I don't see him now, um, has, uh, has co-written with me last year an article in Nature about this problem of of sample sizes in in ancient skeletons and and sampling DNA. Um, Kristen mentioned earlier the, the problem of sample sizes. We're inevitably dealing with small sample sizes in the past. Everybody wants to increase our sample sizes. The way to increase sample sizes of ancient DNA is to drill more bones. And at some point, there is a conflict, right? Because this evidence is intrinsically rare and and we're moving at a very fast pace sometimes for the demands of reviewers and editors to to have a larger sample size for a paper without really doing statistical analyses of what is the minimum possible sample we could use what is the most preservation that we can apply to the samples and for us i think most importantly what are the ethics of this sampling you know we're here many of us working in africa And our African collaborators are not here with us, but our collaborators, our research subjects, and and the people who participate in our research deserve a voice in how we're looking at their past. And for DNA right now, that voice, people aren't ready to give that voice in an informed way because we're still learning at the very forefront of understanding DNA. We have to get to the point where people in communities are generating their own questions about their past and making active decisions as communities to investigate those questions in collaboration with researchers. When we can move DNA research onto that kind of an ethical basis, then I'm much more comfortable drilling things and and grinding up inner ears of things. Um, But but I'll tell you that the, the kind of research that Ian was showing earlier with the skeletons matched up with the DNA, right now one of the big impediments to this is that there's a lot more money to grind up skeletons than there is to study them. And we need to be moving in collaboration between anthropologists, people who are studying morphology, people who are documenting the skeletal samples, and geneticists, because we ask better questions that way.
2: Thanks so much, John. Yep.
1: Other than the size of projectile points what do we know about when and where the bow and arrow were invented?
5: The bow and arrow, arrow. were invented. Were invented. Uh, yes, there are about three thousand papers that are controversial, my but my <laughs> it's answer. guaranteed. It's the uh, direct evidence for bows and arrows comes from a site in Germany called Stelmoor, dated to about twelve thousand. BC, where 100 arrows and a large number of reindeer had been found. (coughs) Unfortunately, during Second World War they were destroyed and there were only some remains in, I think, in the house of the original excavator, Alfred Rust, that um, People tried to do radiocarbon dating and made some little drawings. It's quite clear that um, the these arrows, the way they are drawn, they had a, a small pointed, uh, flint pointed head, uh, a bifacial point. It's called the uh, in uh, archaeological jargon, Arensburgian point, and the car- radiocarbon dates corresponded with the idea that um, Stelmore was about 12,000 or 11,000 BC. There have been people, researchers, who have been trying to antedate the origin of bows and arrows by all various arguments. And um, uh, I'd rather have dinner tonight (laughs) than starting a discussion about when bows and arrows were invented.
1: Okay, so how about this? Um, How can you tell that an artifact found is a tool rather than just a stone. Um, I have to say, when I first saw some of the old one material, uh, it did look a lot like what I found in my driveway. So I would like.
5: So I'm sympathetic to the question. In other words, you want to know. Um, why archaeologists recognize artifacts?
1: Yes, well, but these particular ones.
5: What particular ones?
1: Lemequi, for example, yeah.
5: <laughs> Well, first of all, um, we call tools flakes that have been retouched on the edges, meaning that the particular shape of the flake was intentional. Uh, this could also be, this is also true, of course, of pieces that are complex, like uh, hand axes, for example. Uh, there was a period in the history of archaeology, so I think something like 200 uh, years ago, when there was a discussion whether certain tools or broken stones um, were in fact artifacts or not. They were called eolith. I think that they, we don't do this. We don't spend time with those anymore. I think that there was a fundamental paper by John Desmond Clark um, about how to recognize artifacts from rocks. I think that uh, if you can find it in your library, I suggest you read it because it's a short paper and it's a nice one. Thank
1: Thank you very much. That's it. So maybe, Teresa, you want to have a go at this? I, it's kind of Tim's uh, tossed this back to you, I think. Um, could you speak about any link between language acquisition and genetics, tools, morphology of skulls, trade?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I.
8: <laughs> well, I think that... Um, I think that... A lot of the things that I was talking about, these markers that people are trying to use for complex cognition, um, would be linked to the origins of language. Um, so, language is basically verbal symbolism. I could be speaking my words in a wide variety of different languages. Um, my choice of English, you know, the relationship between the concepts and the words I'm actually using in English. That's uh, a that's a verbal symbol, and so uh, to what capacity Neanderthals could do this um, is areas of investigation. But I would think that there's a close link with what we're identifying in the archaeological record. I was going to ask, can I address Jean-Jacques' first question? So I thought maybe I would like to expand on the first question that was asked to Jean-Jacques about um, the beads, the shell beads, and so in the sample that the samples that we have from Northwest Africa, we have nine um, shell beads samples that vary in size from a sample size of one to 250, so wide variance. Those shells um, in that northwest part of Africa were collected um, dead on the beach when people are accessing the coast probably for other resources and brought them back to the sites. But we do find in many examples in those samples evidence of use wear, so they do appear to have been strung. There's polish on them, so they were used. And then we see traces of ochre on them and occasionally additional modifications of the hole. And in the Moroccan samples, in the northwest African samples, there's a set of samples that are on the Atlantic coast. They're all coastal sites, so the shells have not been transported. We have a few samples in eastern Morocco where the tra- shells have been transported um, from 40 to 50 kilometers, so probably within the range of a hunter-gatherer group's um, cat- cashman area. And the sample size of one um, comes from... Uh, Betaratir, which uh, the the one shell has been um, transported for 200 kilometers, and so this is evidence of long-distance transport within the Middle Stone Age, which we don't have a whole lot of evidence for. Um, So potentially traded, but again, a sample size of one, which is challenging. Um, The South African sample of those same style of shells, we only have one um, large sample from Blombos, one example: there, the shells were collected um, presumably live from the estuaries, and the holes were manufactured um, intentionally. They're also covered in ochre. We also see um, traces of use wear. The Moroccan shells span from 115,000 years ago up into about 80,000 years ago. Blimbos is 70. To 73 to 77, 78,000 years ago, but we don't have anything um, in between. So trying to address this issue of contact is very challenging um, versus independent in- invention of this um, bead technology. One thing we do see is kind of with a wide variety of different cultural groups in more recent time periods is some convergence of the types of materials that people would use as beads. So I think in this instance, it wouldn't um, be impossible that we might have independent invention or, yes, very long distance communications from like the northwest tip and the southwest tip of um, Africa, which is big. So, yes,
1: (laughs) which is big. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is that all? Yeah. Yeah. Ian, um, sort of a, a, I don't know what to call this kind of question, (laughs) how robust is the genetic modeling?
9: Gosh, that's a very big question. So um, I I, I would say uh, some aspects of the genetic modeling are extremely robust, and others perhaps less so, and I think maybe one of the problems with the field of genetics is that we're not necessarily very good at um, uh, conveying that uncertainty. Uh, So, you know, for example, the the sort of things I showed you with the, transi- the population transitions at the Mesolithic-Neolithic boundary, I mean, those are extremely dramatic and obvious and, and robust. I think some of, particularly some of the finer scale structure is, is less robust and maybe sensitive to sampling and maybe sensitive to other analyses. I, I, I mean, I, I regularly say... I think this is one of the things we need to get better at is actually sort of quantifying and, and, and propagating that uncertainty in, in the literature. So is that good?
1: Thanks. Um. Oops. So uh, I don't think you talked about um, either mitochondrial or haplotypes or Y haplotypes, and so this is a question about that. Please elaborate, especially for the time periods you're talking about. Uh, that's turning out to be very informative, right?
9: Yeah, I I, I think there are. I mean. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so, so, so as people are aware, the, the, the mitochondria and Y chromosome essentially give you a, a single locus, so a single position in the genome. And when you look at the, the whole genome, you might be looking at the equivalent of tens of thousands of, of loci. So if you think about all your ancestors, the, the, the mitochondria and Y chromosome are giving you a, the path of a single ancestor, whereas the whole genome is giving you much more information. Um, that, so in that sense, there's a lot more information from, from whole genome analysis, that said, there are some cases in which the uniparental markers are informative, um, particularly for things like trying to infer sex bias demography, um, or actually, in particular, the mitochondria can be extremely useful for dating, just because it's a lot easier to get mitochondrial DNA, and, and so we have bigger trees to calibrate, um, but I, th- you know, I, I think I think that I think in I think in particular that I, I didn't talk about I think probably the most interesting thing in the Holocene are the spread of particular Y chromosome haplogroups which where you know you basically get total replacement of the Y chromosome like three or four times in this period. Now, whether that's because of genetic drift or, or to, I suppose to what extent that's because of genetic drift as opposed to sex bias demography, I think we don't really have a good model for.
1: Um, so I think, Josh, these are, these are going to be on you because I think Ram has uh, left the building. Is that right? <laughs> uh, so, and, and um, this is a great question. What might have isolated superarchaic Homo from Africans on the African continent for half a million years and what might have ended the isolation and led to a semi-recent introgression event? And I before you answer that, I up uh, slavery <laughs> <laughs> Thanks John um, the, the, this there, there is this question that of course hangs over everything where uh, dating population movements, and then there aren't any for a long time, and then there are, and then there aren't, and so the timing of these things gets to raise all kinds of questions about why then, and uh, I wonder, maybe you could answer that more generally before you answer the specific one.
6: Well, so the answer to the specific question is, I don't know, (laughs) Um, and I think the general answer is that Africa is a big continent and diverse, and there's probably many isolating mechanisms that that have existed throughout time, but I don't know of anything more specific to say. Um, Shriram should answer that question. (laughs)
1: And Do you want to have a, a toss at this question of um, introgression, and yet we talk about species? So there are many versions of that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue of introgression, how would foreign DNA survive in Homo sapiens if the definition of a species is interbreeding of two individuals resulting in
6: fertile offspring, foreign from other species, for example, Neanderthal? So I think I have um, a pretty strong opinion on this general class of questions, and that is that um, it's really uh, not a biologically interesting question anymore in trying to define a species. It's a way that we try to organize the world around us, and I think um, what Katerina said earlier was a really good response in that Speciation is a process, and that there are degrees of reproductive isolation that exist. And sometimes we can neatly define groups into species, and sometimes we can't. And even when they are very um, either morphologically or genetically different, some hybridization can still happen.
1: Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not getting off easy here. Um, I, I think this is is a. Uh, Well, Maybe it could just be that because I don't know what I'm talking about that I think this is uh, um, an interesting question. How how is DNA introgressed from archaic species into humans identified that it's introgressed as distinguished from mutations in human populations? How do we know that genes were introgressed and it's not either recent mutations or some convergent
6: selection? So that's a really great question. Um, The way that we look for sequences that we call introgressed and distinguish it from modern human sequences is that, in general, there's more sequence divergence between a randomly selected human chromosome and a randomly selected Neanderthal chromosome And gene flow happened pretty recently, so we're looking for um, big chunks of sequence that have this signal of more divergence. So when you combine the the higher divergence between modern humans and Neanderthals that persist over long distances, that's a pretty unique signature that allows you to say this is a Neanderthal-inherited sequence and this is a modern human sequence.
1: Uh, this is a question about blood types, uh, and, and I. It, there may be a simple answer. Uh, type O is dominantly African, A dominantly European, B can be East Asian, A B Eurasian. What types are Neanderthal and Denisovan?
6: That is a great question, and I don't know the answer. Actually, does any of the other speakers know? Yeah. So it, um, John said A and O in Neanderthals. We don't know about type B. Um, I don't know of other um, blood group loci um, that that might be interesting to look at. Too. Sometimes these occur in more structurally complex regions of the genome, so it may be difficult to determine the genotypes for for some of the genes. Yeah, so the other complicating factor is that this region is under probably long-term balancing selection. So these alleles are maintained by selection for very long periods of time and can be found for hundreds of thousands of years.
1: Oh, And the last one, um, Ian mentioned some of his favorite genes. Do you have favorite genes? And if so, what makes them your favorite? <laughs>
6: My, my favorite genes are um, Ian's favorite genes. Um, so, Actually, FADs 1 and 2 and 3 are um, fascinating evolutionarily. They have this interesting uh, geographic distribution. They're clearly been under um, recurrent episodes of selection. I think my favorite gene is BNC2, um, and that is a very strong example of adaptive introgression. So the Neanderthal version of this gene is at very high frequency in European populations. It's, uh, it stands for basal nuclein 2, and it's involved in uh, skin biology in some way that we don't really understand. And I think it's fascinating to think about what sort of um, trait, skin trait, that was inherited from Neanderthals that was beneficial to modern humans. And so I guess that's my favorite gene. And before we wrap up, um, it turns out my sons were watching, and they sent me a couple questions. Um, so I'm going to quickly answer them. Um, so the first was, what does MB stand for? So that's megabase, or one million base pairs. Um, the next question is, what is mixture? Sex? Yes. Um, when I say mixture or admixture, that means sex. Um, what is a centromere? So a centromere is a point on the chromosome that allows microtubules to attach so that it can be pulled apart during um, chromosomal segregation. And I'll probably have other questions about that answer. Um, and what is introgression? Introgression is the transfer of genetic material from, from one group to another. And that's all of his questions. Thank you. <laughs>
3: Okay, so thanks for the, those of you who stayed on. Thank you to those who made this symposium possible, to the symposium chairs, to all our speakers, to all our sponsors and supporters, and the audience for attending and for your great questions. Thank you all for coming.